of Scripture's application. Let me explain what I mean. Two things happen in this paragraph. Two things happen in this paragraph. One, faith is strengthened. And two, guilt is exposed. Salvation and condemnation. Growth and accountability. Spiritual eyes opened more widely to see Jesus and spiritual blindness confirmed in a foretaste of judgment. That's the core of this paragraph. Two things. Faith is strengthened. Guilt is exposed. And both both occur in connection with Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, friends, this means every person who hears this sermon has a place in this passage. This text speaks to every individual present. In fact, you could say it more strongly. This text speaks to every person on the planet. There are only two categories of people in this life. Those who have eyes to see Jesus by faith and those who remain blind in sin. There are only two categories of people. And if you want to learn more about that, you should come to VBS this week. There are only two categories of people. So when we say that this, that this paragraph does two things, strengthens faith and exposes guilt, that's the same as saying that this passage speaks to every person present, no matter where you are. You, you and your life are addressed in these verses. Either for your faith to be strengthened, or for your guilt before God to be exposed. That's the power of the Word of God. That's why churches ought to preach through books of the Bible. (laughs) Because in doing so, we're reminded of the never-changing, always timely application of Scripture to every person's life. Every day. So the aim of this sermon is the same as every other sermon that we preach. We want to respond to God's Word on God's terms. If you're a Christian this morning, I pray that your faith would be strengthened by this text, just as it was for the formerly blind man in John 9. And if you're not a Christian today, then I pray that your eyes would be opened to see your accountability before God. And in seeing that accountability, I pray that God would grant you faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is strengthened And guilt is exposed. There's only two categories of people. This passage does two things. And so the big question is, where do you fall in this text? Before we look at the details, it might be helpful to reset the scene as we come to verse 35. At the outset of the chapter, Jesus encountered a man who was blind from birth. And after correcting the disciples on the cause of the man's blindness, Jesus proceeded to Heal the man, an unprecedented miracle. It was a remarkable miracle, in fact, confirming Jesus' identity as the Christ. It was also a miracle that got the Pharisees' attention, who once again did not like Jesus doing miraculous things on the Sabbath day. That was the striking point from last week. The Pharisees are so blind in their opposition to Jesus that they cannot see the glory of God when it dwells in flesh and blood right before their very eyes. Overall then, the miracle and the controversy that ensued were like living parables of Jesus' ministry. 
What happens when the light of the world shines in the darkness? Those who are blind come to see by grace, and those who pridefully think that they already see are shown to be blind. Today, we get the conclusion to that whole scene. We get the conclusion to both the miracle and the controversy. The Pharisees, you remember, have cast the formerly blind man out of the synagogue, making him an exile among his people. They want nothing to do with the man who was blind but now sees. They cast him out. Jesus, however, seeks the man out. And that's where we pick things up today. As we study the passage, we're going to focus on those two events that we mentioned earlier. How faith is strengthened and how guilt is exposed. Both occur in connection with Jesus. That's where we're going. Let's begin then, verses 35 to 38, where we learn that faith grows the more we see Jesus. That's the first thing we ought to note this morning. Faith grows the more we see Jesus. It should jump off the page to you that Jesus seeks the outcast. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast the man out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? We'll get to Jesus' question in just a moment. For now, though, I want you to note Jesus' compassion. Jesus did not have to seek this man out. He already healed the man's blindness, and you could argue that that's compassion enough. But Jesus goes further. He hears that the man has been cast out, so Jesus seeks him out. This formerly blind man, his whole life is in the process of being completely restored, and everything happens at Jesus' initiative. Did you notice that? Everything happens at Jesus' initiative. The man didn't ask to be healed. Jesus healed him on his own. The man didn't seek Jesus out. Jesus sought him out. From start to finish, the compassion of the Lord Jesus changes this man's life. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the sweetest aspects of Jesus' character. He is compassionate to his people. The Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus is kind. Do you often think of kindness as an attribute of Christ? You should. His kindness is present in your life every day, if you're a Christian. How many times have you been weak and not honored him as you ought? Did Jesus cast you out in response to that? No, he pursued you. How many times have you been foolish in the things that you said, did, or thought? How many times have you lacked wisdom in the way you carried out your life? Did Jesus rush to condemn you? Did he show up and bring down the hammer of God's law upon you? No. He was gentle with you. If you're a Christian this morning, the kindness of Jesus Christ is with you every day. It's almost like the air that you breathe as a child of God. It may be the most practically present part of Jesus' ministry towards you, that He does not break a bruised reed, that He does not leave you on the sidelines of life, that whenever you act foolish and weak and dishonor Him, He doesn't castigate or cast you out. He's gentle with you. 
He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's kind. I hope you think often about how kind the Lord Jesus is. And if you struggle to see His kindness, go out tomorrow and watch the sunrise. It's the kindness of God in Christ. And flowing from that, and flowing from that kindness, I hope we see a further application. We haven't even finished the first verse, and already we got two applications. The Bible is amazing. I hope you see the further application. If Christ, if Christ is kind to those on the outskirts of life, are you? If Christ is compassionate towards you at times when you may not even know that you are receiving compassion, are you that way with others? Listen, friends, if we think, if we think that the most Christ-like thing we can do as Christians is thunder and rail against stuff, then we don't understand the Lord as we ought. Patience. Kindness, compassion. Those are the virtues that ought to mark Christ-like people. How do you know that? Why could you say that, Pastor? Because of verse 35. Jesus seeks out the outcast in verse 35. Will we live with that same attitude? Now we can think about Jesus' question. He asks the man in verse 35, Do you believe... In the Son of Man. Son of Man. That's Jesus' preferred title for Himself. In part because it didn't stir up all the misconceptions about the Messiah that were common in Jesus' day. That's not to say that the title Son of Man is unrelated to Jesus as the Messiah. The title comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in that passage, the prophet Daniel sees one like a Son of Man approaching God's throne. And in this stunning display... The one like a son of man is given dominion over all the kingdoms and nations of the earth. So, son of man is a messianic title. It's just one that wouldn't create much controversy for Jesus. Which is why he prefers to use it at this point of his ministry. Do you believe in the son of man? He asks the formerly blind man. There's probably a further reason that Jesus uses this title in his question. If you read through the Gospel of John, the title Son of Man is often used in connection with Jesus' role as the judge. John 5.27 is a good example. The Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So in John's Gospel, the Son of Man is the judge of all things. And this explains why Jesus uses the title here with this man. This is why he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Think about what the formerly blind man has just experienced. What has he experienced? The judgment of people. The Pharisees cast him out. So when Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? What is Jesus doing? He's showing the blind man whose judgment really matters. Not the Pharisees. Let them cast you out all they want. Their judgment doesn't matter. Jesus' does. Those who believe in the Son of Man don't have to fear the world's judgment because they belong to the true and final judge, Jesus Himself. In a way, the question is another instance of kindness from Jesus to the man. 
He's preparing him to receive the truth that will encourage and sustain him through the trial that he's facing. At first, though, the man doesn't understand Jesus' question. Look at verse 36. The man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? That question's understandable, isn't it? Remember, the man has never seen Jesus. Jesus sent him to the pool, remember, with the mud on his eyes, and the man washed, and he could see, but he's never seen Jesus. So you can understand the man's question, Who is this son of man? And I'll believe in him, the man says. Jesus' answer is another layer of mercy and grace. Look at verse 37. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Let's appreciate for a moment this incredible answer from Jesus. The Lord says to this formerly blind man, You have seen him. (laughs) How powerful is that for this man who now sees? You have seen him, Jesus says. That answer points the man back to his healing. In a way, Jesus says, you already know who he is. You already know who the Son of Man is. It's it's the one who gave you your eyesight. Jesus keeps going though, and he says, it's he who is speaking to you. This is one of those very clear moments of revelation from Jesus in John's Gospel, and they always come to people that you wouldn't expect, like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and now a blind man who's an outcast. In John chapter 9, Jesus leaves, a, leaves him with no doubt. It's he who is speaking to you. I am the son of man, Jesus says. I'm the one who God has established as the judge. I'm the one who will rule over the nations. I'm the one who saves God's people. Believe in me, Jesus tells him. Believe in me. And through this moment of grace, the man believes and worships. Look at verse 38. The man said, Lord... I believe. I love the simplicity of faith. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Please don't miss the irony that the Apostle John has been building for the entire chapter. The Pharisees claim to see, but they reject Jesus. The man they treat like an outcast who was blind, he sees and he worships. He sees by grace and that grace leads the man to faith. He believes and he worships. In the flow of the chapter, you could argue that verse 38 is not the man's first evidence of faith. Remember how, the, remember how the miracle occurred in the first place. Jesus sent the man to the pool with the mud on his eyes. And so on some level, the man had to trust Jesus' word from the very beginning, right? Even if that initial faith was only, only seed-like, even if that initial faith was only small, You could argue that trust in Jesus was present on some level from the beginning of the man's interaction with the Lord. However, it's not until verse 38 that this man's faith finds its full expression. Here, the man's faith is clear. I believe and he worships. Here, the man believes the truth about who Jesus is, which is why he worships him. So if we keep that analogy of of seed-like faith going, by verse 38, the seed has taken root. It's grown, and now in response to Jesus' grace, that initial seed of faith that led him to the pool to wash now bears fruit in the man's life. The man confesses Jesus as Lord and worships Him. In John's Gospel, he's one of the very few people who does. He sees and he worships. 
What made the difference then for this formerly blind man? Answer, he saw more of Jesus. By grace, the man's eyes were opened. And by grace, the man's understanding was deepened. His faith, you see, grew in response to seeing more of Jesus Christ. To say it differently, the man's faith did not grow in response to himself. His insight, his believing, his strength, his fortitude, his knowledge. The man's faith did not grow in response to himself. The man's faith grew in response to seeing Jesus. The more he sees, the more he believes. And in believing, he's saved. Brothers and sisters, what we have here is a narrative picture of a spiritual truth. The man's life illustrates how faith grows. The more we see Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's accomplished, what He's like, the more we see Jesus, the more our faith grows in response to Him. There is perhaps nothing more important then for a Christian than to regularly, consistently, and humbly fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ. When we see Christ, faith grows in strength. What does it mean to see Jesus, you ask? He's not physically present, Pastor. So what does it mean to see Jesus? That's an excellent question. We see Jesus Christ in His Word. From Genesis to Revelation. In fact, this is the entire reason why we ought to be reading the Bible regularly. So that our faith will grow and be strengthened in response to Christ. We don't, we don't read the Bible to know stuff. We read the Bible to live. We read the Bible so that our faith grows. We read the Bible so that our faith endures by seeing the one in whom we have placed our faith, Jesus Christ. So how do you see Jesus? You see him in his word. And when you see him, your faith endures Friends, I cannot tell you how many times I wake up in the morning and I go down to my office and I have coffee because coffee is a means of grace from God and I drink coffee and I open the Bible and the only thing that I know how to pray in those mornings is God help me see Christ because I'm not sure I'm going to stay in the faith today. Help me see. And then you read and you see and God strengthens your faith in that moment. We don't read the Bible to know stuff. We read the Bible to live. Where do you see Jesus? You see Him in His Word. You also see Jesus through the worshiping life of His church. Friends, this is why regularly attending church is vital. It's essential for your faith as a Christian. When the church gathers to worship, what is happening right now? What is happening this morning as we've all come together here in this, in this physical place. What's going on? Jesus Christ is present among us through the ministry of His Word applied by His Holy Spirit lived out through the members of His body. Jesus Christ is present. And in this glorious moment of the church being together, the body builds itself up in love. The body ministers to itself through scripture reading and prayer and singing and preaching. The church ministers one to another so that the reigning Christ in heaven becomes the visible seeing Christ in the presence of His people. 
Right now, this morning, think about this. This is staggering to me. Right now, this morning, you may be one of the instruments that God uses to strengthen the faith of another Christian. When you sing loudly and joyfully, you may, you may well be helping a fellow believer hear the truth about Christ, see Christ in a way that they would not have seen otherwise than hearing your voice singing praise to God. When you serve the needs of the church, you may well be allowing another member to participate in the ministry of the church in some other area so that they receive more about who Jesus is and their faith endures. The ministry, listen to me, the ministry, in other words, is not, the ministry is not what pastors do up front. The ministry is what we do together. To help one another see Christ. And it all has that same aim. To see Jesus Christ and to be strengthened and to believe. Faith grows the more you see Jesus. So take up your Bible tomorrow and read. Not to check some box off of a list. Or to learn more stuff. Take up your Bible and read so that you will live. By seeing Christ. Come to church, even on rainy Sunday mornings. Come to church with your eyes wide open, ready to serve other members, because your service to them might be the means that God uses to help them see Jesus more that day and persevere in the faith. Faith grows the more we see Jesus. That was true for the man in John chapter 9. And it will be true of us, brothers and sisters, if we will humble ourselves to see the Lord, both in His Word and in His church. Faith grows the more we see Jesus. We said at the outset that two things happen in this passage. We just thought about the first one, the encouraging one, how faith is strengthened. Now we're going to think about the second one. Verses 39 to 41. Guilt, guilt remains for those who reject Jesus. There's always a sharp edge to the gospel. Here it is. Guilt remains for those who reject Jesus. This is a challenging set of verses. We're going to have to think along carefully with the Lord. The challenge begins in verse 39 when Jesus summarizes his mission by using the imagery of this entire chapter. Look again, verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. That's a summary of why Jesus came. That's a a one-sentence encapsulation from Jesus as to his mission in the world. And you could summarize that mission in two words, reversal and redemption. What does Jesus come to do? Reversal and redemption. His mission, first of all, brings about a great reversal. This is what Jesus means when he says that those who are blind see and those who think they see become blind. The coming of Jesus Christ turns the expected categories of the world on their head. You've heard me say before that the kingdom of God is upside down 
from the ways of the world. And that's part of what Jesus means in verse 39. His coming turns the expected categories of this world upside down. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about this passage, John chapter 9. In this chapter, who would the world say is equipped with spiritual eyes to see the truth? Who would the world say is equipped to see? The Pharisees, right? They're the religious experts. They believe that they see the truth. But in reality, what does Jesus' ministry do to the Pharisees? It makes them blind. It reveals their blindness. It even deepens their blindness. And the converse becomes true as well. The blind man was considered a sinner. In the world's estimation, the blind man's physical disability was a sign of his spiritual lostness. The world would say that the blind man couldn't see God. That's why he was blind. Because of sin. So what does Jesus do? He turns that expectation upside down. The blind man is the one who sees, and the religious experts are the one who receive judgment. It's the formerly blind man who worships Jesus, not the experts in the law of Moses. Friends, this kind of reversal, this kind of upside-down, topsy-turvy work, is part and parcel of Christ's mission in the world. This is how the gospel works. The truth of Christ crucified upends the world's categories. It is not the wise and the noble and the powerful whom God saves. It's the weak and the blind and the sinner. So Jesus' mission can be summarized as a, as a great reversal. Secondly, Jesus' mission also brings about redemption. When Jesus talks about those who do not see being able to see, He's describing salvation, redemption. By God's grace, salvation is the bestowal of spiritual sight. By the Spirit, through the preaching of the Gospel, God opens blind eyes, and when those eyes are opened to see Jesus, faith springs up in response to Him. Jesus' mission then is to redeem people from spiritual blindness. The miracle in this chapter is a living parable. It's it's an enacted parable of Jesus' work. He came to open the eyes of the blind and to bring them to faith. And that happens as they see Him. So, that's Jesus' mission. Verse 39, reversal, redemption. At this point, however, the Pharisees... Don't you just wish they'd go away? (laughs) The Pharisees detect an opportunity to justify themselves and they're going to try to do so by trapping Jesus in a theological conundrum. Look at verse 40. They ask Jesus a question. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? First point to note here, that's not a genuine question. They're not really asking because they want to know. Essentially, essentially, what the Pharisees are doing is challenging Jesus on the justice of God. If we're blind, the Pharisees say with a snicker and a wink, if we're blind, then how can we be accountable to this judgment that you claim to bring, Jesus? Do, do, you, see the, do you see the challenge? If there are some people who are spiritually blind, then how is it right for Jesus to issue judgment against them? Wouldn't that be unjust of God? Aren't you 
Jesus castigating God as being unrighteous and unjust. That's what they're asking him in verse 40. Now understand, the Pharisees don't consider themselves to be spiritually blind. They believe that they are quite capable of seeing spiritual truth. Thank you very much. It's Jesus who's blind in their view. It's sinners like that blind man who are unable to see. The Pharisees don't think they need anyone to open their eyes. It's not a genuine question. It's a trap. So, Jesus answers their question, but he does so by challenging their assumptions. He, you always get more than you bargain for when you ask Jesus questions. Jesus answers their question, but he challenges them as he does so. Look at Jesus' answer, verse 41. Jesus said to them, If you were blind you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. The the Pharisees don't understand the depth of their problem. That's Jesus' big picture point here. They are mistaken about how deeply corrupted they are by sin. So, when Jesus says, if you were blind, he's constructing a hypothetical scenario. He's saying, if you were legitimately cut off from God's revelation, then God would not hold you accountable for rejecting Israel's Messiah at this point. It's a hypothetical scenario. If you really couldn't see the Messiah standing in front of you, then God wouldn't judge you for rejecting Him. It's just a hypothetical scenario that Jesus uses to show them how delusional they are. Everyone receives God's revelation to some degree. For the Pharisees, God's revelation is standing right in front of them. The Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. If they were truly blind and unable to see, then they would not be condemned for rejecting that revelation. But Jesus then continues, that hypothetical scenario is not the reality for the Pharisees. On the contrary, they claim to see quite well. Because you say we do see, Jesus says, your guilt remains. They, they boast in how well they see. I mean, it happened in this chapter. Look back at verse 29. Just here in chapter 9. Verse 29. The Pharisees boast that they know God has spoken through Moses. We don't need your teaching, Jesus. You're a charlatan. We don't need Jesus. We have Moses, and we see just fine with Moses. The Pharisees boast in their ability to discern spiritual truth. They already believe that they see. They don't need Jesus. And therefore, Jesus says, their guilt remains. They're convicted by their own words. They're indicted by their own boasts. They are accountable to God because they willfully reject God's truth. Spiritual blindness, in other words, doesn't exempt someone from accountability before God. Spiritual blindness reveals that person's accountability to God. The Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus in this this theological conundrum, but all they end up doing is convicting themselves. Their own pride exposes their blindness and therefore their accountability to God. Their guilt remains, just as Jesus says. Friends, this this is almost the same argument that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 for those who do not know God. Do you, do you remember Romans chapter 1, Paul's point, Romans 1, 21, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish 
hearts were darkened. Paul summarizes humanity's condition, just like Jesus does in John chapter 9. Are human beings blind in their sin? Yes. Does their blindness exempt them from accountability to God? No. Why not? Because God makes His revelation plain for everyone to see. God reveals Himself clearly so that no one, so that no one has an excuse. The atheist unbeliever who denies that God exists will be judged by the God whom he denies. How is that right or just? If that atheist unbeliever is spiritually blind, it's right and just because God reveals himself in the creation so that all are without excuse. The same is true for the Pharisees. They will be judged by the very same Messiah that they reject. And when they attempt to say to God, we didn't know he was the Messiah, God will say, I made it plain. He healed the blind man right before you. So this is the summary on the Pharisees. They see Jesus, but they don't see Him. They see Him standing there, but they don't, they don't see Him. And that blindness doesn't exempt them from the judgment of God. It brings God's judgment upon them. So what, what should the Pharisees do in this passage? What should they do? What would change their position? Well, surprisingly, they have to admit that they're blind. <laughs> They have to be humbled under the teaching of Jesus' word. They have to acknowledge that their devotion to Moses is not enough. That they need God to open their eyes. They need to become poor in spirit, as Jesus says in another sermon. They need to become poor in spirit, for it's only through humbling yourself under the word of God that you can come to see the truth about who Jesus is. Practically speaking, then, this... This really sobering moment with the Pharisees, and it is sobering just to see how blind sin can make a person, that you can look the Messiah in the face and reject him. Practically speaking, these verses ought to remind us that the starting point for evangelism, the starting point for evangelism has to be the doctrine of sin. Actually, you should say that the starting point of evangelism has to be the doctrine of God, which is, why we, which is how we understand why sin is so bad. But the point remains. To understand the good news of Jesus Christ, people have to first embrace the bad news about themselves. To minimize the severity of sin is to undercut the gospel's power. Of course, being clear about sin is not the same as being harsh towards sinners. This should be basic Christian character 101. Being clear is not the same as being obnoxious. Being clear on sin, though, does require a certain humility on our part. A willingness to recognize that we actually can't save anyone. We are simply the messengers tasked with being faithful. And being faithful means beginning with who God is and what Sin is, and therefore, every person's accountability to God as those made in His image. That's where we're going to end for today. To, to members of this church, I hope, I do hope and pray that your faith has been strengthened by seeing the kindness and the character of Jesus Christ. 
And I hope that your faithfulness has been sharpened to be clear on the gospel from start to finish. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ to save you, if you're not a Christian this morning, I pray to God and I plead with you to see the truth of Jesus Christ crucified and and resurrected for the salvation of sinners like us. You cannot save yourself. We want to be clear with you as a church. Sin is far worse than breaking a few rules. Sin is much more serious than bad choices. Sin is treason against God. Sin is rebellion against the Creator. That's bad enough. But sin doesn't stop with rebellion. Sin goes on to deceive and to blind and to enslave. Apart from God's mercy and grace, your sin will lead to judgment. You cannot save yourself. And apart from God's mercy and grace, your sin will lead to judgment. That's not my opinion. That's not some official position of the church. That's the truth from Jesus, friends. And from His Word. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ saves all who come to Him. He opens eyes to see the truth. And He opens His eyes through His Word. And so our prayer is that He would open your eyes even today. The Bible calls you to turn from sin and to own the fact that you have rebelled against God. But then the Bible also calls you to believe that the Son of God lived and died and rose again in your place. Can you imagine that? That the perfect, sinless, holy Son of God would die in your place? That's kindness and mercy and grace. To be a Christian is to confess that you're a rebel against God. But it's also to believe that Christ Himself died for your rebellion so that you wouldn't have to. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, our prayer, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes this morning to see and to repent and to believe and to be saved. Amen. Let's pray, friends. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to hear the word of God with ears of faith and to respond as we ought. Lord, we pray for the Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do, and that's to grant the new birth. We pray, Father, that if there are those among us who do not know Christ, that right now, through the ministry of Your Word, the Holy Spirit would take out their hearts of stone, give them hearts of living flesh that see and rejoice and believe in Jesus. Father, we pray that we would know the kindness of Christ as the ever-present gift of His ministry to us. Help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's about, that's about.